as Rob said, the passage right before the one that we are looking at this morning that Alex read to us ends with a scribe, one of the religious leaders, asking Jesus a question. Okay, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus replies, to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Mark adds, verse 34, after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Up until now, the religious elite have fired loads of questions at Jesus. Hey, who can forgive sins but God alone? Why do your disciples break the Sabbath? By what authority do you do what you do? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? What about the resurrection? And what is the greatest commandment? But now it is as if Jesus has silenced them. It's like a debate where a, a it's like a debate between two politicians and one politician, one of them thinks he is going to wipe the floor with his opponent. But the opposite happens and the ground shifts. And now these religious leaders, they're not the authority anymore. Instead, Mark tells us, Jesus asks them a question. We're going to look at three things this morning. And the first one is identity, getting it right. Look at verse 35. As Jesus taught in the temple, so as we've seen before, all of the action in this last week, it's all centering on the epicenter of the religious life of Judaism. It's all centering on the place where heaven and earth met, where God dwelt among men. It's all happening at the seat of these religious leaders' authority. And it's there in the temple that Jesus asks them this question, verse 35. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, getting someone's identity right matters, doesn't it? I don't, know if you, um, I don't know if you saw him, but the man who was responsible for organising the Queen's funeral was the Duke of Norfolk. And his hereditary seat is Arundel Castle. It's a few miles from uh, where I grew up. And Arundel Castle sits uh, beside the River Arran. And at the mouth of the River Arran is a yacht club where I spent a whole load of my childhood because my parents and my grandparents were members there. And one day, the wife of the previous Duke of Norfolk, the Duchess, Lavinia, Duchess of Norfolk, came to visit the yacht club. Great day, you know, very honored. Even I got to, me and my brothers and a sister, we got to be there. And it was one of those, you know, posh events, everyone standing around politely drinking glasses of white wine and eating cheese on little sticks, and everyone chatting politely. And I think I must have been about six or so. And after a while, I got bored of this and thought I would go and find my grandmother. And so I saw her across the room, toddled over to her, wrapped my arms around her legs in a big hug, 
and the room went deathly quiet. And I looked up, and instead of the face of my grandmother looking down, it was the face of Lavinia, Duchess of Norfolk. Okay, getting someone's identity right matters, doesn't it? Especially if you are going to squeeze their leg. <laughs> and Jesus' question here concerns identity, the identity of the Messiah. Who do the religious leaders think that he is? And in particular, why do they think he's the son of David? Why ask that? Because, I mean, if you... I mean, if you look at the Old Testament, it's obvious, isn't it? The fact that the Messiah, the ultimate king, will arise from the line of David and come and put everything right, that is one of the great promises in the Bible. It's the promise that God makes to David himself. It is the promise that is picked up by all three of the great writing prophets. Through Isaiah, the Lord says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Through Jeremiah, the Lord says, Behold, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king. And then through Ezekiel, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. So given just the, the spread of the promises about what, is, what God is going to do in and through the line of David, it is no wonder that a normal guy like blind Bartimaeus, when he hears that Jesus has been healing hurts and making wrongs right, hears that Jesus is walking past and he starts crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Why? Because who is the Messiah? He is the Son of David. So why does Jesus question that? Because is that all that we can say about him? And in verse 36, Jesus says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, in other words, Jesus saying, hey, what I am going to tell you, the, the psalm I am going to quote to you, it's not just David's words. He, when he wrote this, he was in the Holy Spirit. He was moved by the Holy Spirit. What I'm going to tell you doesn't just carry David's weight. It's not just David's word. This carries God's weight. This is God's word. So what does God say? Well, the psalm he quotes is Psalm 110. It is the most quoted uh, passage in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And the psalm goes on to speak of a king, a man sat on David's throne, but who is also a priest, a priest in the line of Melchizedek, a man who combines the two offices previously held separate, a man who is going to be both king and priest. 
And when David wrote, the Lord said to my Lord, that first Lord is God. It's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's God's covenant name. I am who I am. But the second Lord is the word Adonai, and it's referring to the king, the king on David's throne. But he's not just sat on David's throne. He is sat at God's right hand in the place of greatest honor. And the rest of the psalm speaks of how the king's people are going to offer themselves gladly to him and how he will conquer and triumph over all of his enemies. And one theory is, is that David wrote the psalm for his son Solomon's coronation. Okay, whatever reason David wrote it, Solomon failed to live up to it. But so too did every subsequent son of David, every subsequent king. They also failed to live up to it. What didn't fail was the hope, the messianic hope, that one day an ultimate son of David would come and he would live up to it and he would reign and reign in righteousness and in triumph. And Jesus is asking, but when that king comes, will he only be the son of David? Verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? You see, if David wrote this, which he did, then he's saying that the Messiah is his Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. But how, in a patriarchal culture that deferred to and looked up to its elders and its ancestors, could a descendant of David, who is the head of the family, who is the king, who every subsequent king is measured and judged by, how could a descendant of that king possibly call his, his, him be called his lord? How could the descendant be called the Lord of his ancestor? Only if he wasn't just his descendant. Only if Messiah didn't just come after David, but came before him. Only if he didn't just succeed him, but surpass him. Only if David's glory and authority was always just a shadow of the greater glory and authority that the Messiah had had for all eternity past. Only if he didn't just sit on David's throne, but on the throne over every throne. Only if he's not just king of Israel, but king of everyone, king of kings and lord of lords king over the whole earth. As Augustine put it, only if he is son of David according to his humanity, but Lord of David according to his divinity, that he wasn't just son of David, but he is also son of God. Now think about that. Think where Jesus is saying all of this. Where's he standing He's in the temple, the place where heaven and earth met. And he is saying, I am that Messiah 
I am that meeting place of heaven and earth. I am son of David and the Lord of David. I'm the one in which heaven and earth meet. I am the dwelling place of God with men. But of course, if you think about it, if Jesus is David's Lord, that has implications for us, doesn't it? It has implications for these religious leaders and for you and for me. Okay, look how Paul puts it as he writes to the Church of Rome. He talks of the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, if Jesus is David's Lord, then he's also your Lord, which means that the question of Jesus' identity has implications for your identity. Who he is has profound implications for who you are. Second point then. Image, getting it wrong. Identity, getting it right. Image, getting it wrong. And teaching in the temple, Jesus sees two people or two um, or groups of people, two different groups of people, a person and another group, and he watches their behavior. Okay, first are the scribes, the religious leaders. Second is a widow. Verses 38 to 40. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. So these men, Jesus says, they are dressing to impress because what they are choosing to wear signals both their status and their wealth, both their religious office and their income, their standing in society. And they like the attention that that status got them. Greetings in the marketplaces, the respect of other people. Hello, doctor, nice to meet you. They like the honor it gave them. They could sit up front at the synagogue. And not just in, in the front row, but in a row set apart from everybody else facing everybody else, which meant everyone else was looking at them. And at feasts, they got to sit behind, beside the host, served the best food, and served it first. It's the public acknowledgement. Hey, you're somebody. You've made it. So while the Bible tells us that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart, Jesus is saying these men are entirely focused on the outward appearance, on their image, on how they appear to other people. But of course, if you think about it, being taken up by image can have a profoundly corrupting effect on the heart, can't it? The Old Testament repeatedly tells us that God is the defender of the most vulnerable in society, of widows and orphans and the foreigner. But instead of defending widows, these leaders devoured them, or at least Jesus says that they devoured what was theirs. Because if you think about it, 
When image is what matters most to you, something's got to fund that lifestyle, hasn't it? Something's got to fund the great car or the big house or the fancy clothes. That money's got to come from somewhere. And to pay for it, you will either take what you shouldn't or you won't give what you should. And on top of it all, Jesus says, for a pretense, they make long prayers. They cover their greed with spiritual whitewash. Now remember, right before this, Jesus has been saying that what really matters is that we love God with all of our heart and love our neighbors as ourselves. Is that what these guys are doing? It's not God they're loving with all their heart, is it? They are loving themselves with all of their heart. And it's not that they're loving their neighbor, they are loving the attention of their neighbor. You know, uh, last weekend we were on our um, uh, young adult student retreat. We were looking at the seven deadly sins, the capital vices. And this is the deadly sin, the capital vice of vainglory of getting your kicks, of getting your sense of worth, of finding your identity in the image that you project and the applause that comes from that. But if you think about it, that temptation did not stop with the scribes. In the Apostle John's third letter, he mentions a man called Diotrephes. Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. And when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, He warns them against being taken in by leaders who display exactly the same characteristics as these scribes. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. And you can probably think of pastors or politicians who do this who fleece the flock rather than feed it. And yet, I want to ask you, do you recognize that temptation in your own heart? To find your identity, to find your worth in what other people think of you. And as a result, you find yourself having to project a certain image. That might mean putting on a mask so they only see the good you, your best self. Or it might mean hiding your real self so that others think better of you. And I want you to think about how that can have a corrupting effect on us. Now, sure, we may not be given to devouring widows' houses, but like the scribes, we may still do things that we shouldn't do and not do things that we should do. All in order to get the attention, to get the glory that we think we need. We might criticize somebody or gossip about, about them behind their backs or put them down. We might twist the truth ever so slightly so that it reflects better on us. When we experience success, we might fail to give credit to those without whom we could never have achieved that success. And we do that because we want all the credit. We want it all coming our way. So you might not give credit to your team members or to your colleagues. Or if our identity is tied up with our image in what we have, then what we have is where our resources are going to go instead of where God might have us put those resources. 
And in the process, it can have the same corrosive impact on our characters and relationships as it was having on these scribes. Now in the, um, I think it's a wonderful film, in uh, Greatest Showman, uh, Barnum sings, and I won't. Um, from now on, these eyes will not be blinded by the lights, because they have been. His eyes have been blinded by the lights, because he has sought his identity, his worth in his image and in the applause of others. I drank champagne with kings and queens. The politicians praised my name, but those are someone else's dreams, the pitfalls of the man I became. For years and years I chased their cheers, the crazy speed of always needing more. But then it all comes crashing down and he realizes and he sings, of his need to come back home. Fascinating, isn't it? The need to come home to an identity that is not built on the superficial applause of fame or the fleeting attention of others or the restlessness of always having to prove yourself or to project an image, but home to relationships that are deep and real. Because as Jesus makes clear with these scribes, the only reward that you get from a life built on external appearance is the applause of the crowd. That's the only reward. A life that robs other people of the good that you could do them ends up robbing you. Verse 40, they will receive the greater condemnation. Okay. But Jesus sees someone else, doesn't he? He sees the scribes, but he sees someone else as well. Verse 41, Jesus is sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. And he watches the rich put in their money and then comes along, verse 42, a poor widow. In the eyes of everyone else there, she is the exact opposite of them, isn't she? When it comes to status, they're at the top. She is at the bottom. They wanted significance. She is totally insignificant. They are men. She is a woman. They are rich. She is poor. They devoured widows' houses. And she is a widow. And all she has to her name are two small copper coins. Why does she only have two small copper coins? Maybe because these guys have taken the rest. And Mark tells us how much those copper coins were worth. Verse 42, they make a penny. Not, I would have to say, a British penny, uh, which is currently worthless after the recent UK financial meltdown. Okay, not a British penny, but a quadrantis, one sixty-fourth of a denarius. And a denarius was how much a man could earn with a day's labor. So these two small copper coins, they're worth about eight minutes of work. And that, Jesus says in verse 44, is everything she had, all that she had to live on. And she puts it in the offering. So here are the religious leaders devouring widows' possessions. And here is a widow giving all of her possessions. Now, if you think about it, in virtually any world, 
the rich, who were there as well and putting in their de large donations in virtually any world, it's the rich who would get the attention, isn't it? I mean, certainly in a world where image is everything and where wealth helps create that image, the, the world of the scribes, maybe our Western world. But what about the world of our own hearts? You know, imagine if two people pitched up here one Sunday morning and one is a well-known, well-loved celebrity with all the trappings of wealth and fame that come with it. But he's also known for his generosity and his giving to charitable causes. He's known for giving uh, large sums to church building projects. While the other is a poor woman who has nothing and she's not known to any of us. Who would get our attention? Who would we all be talking about? Do you know who turned up to church today? Who would I go and speak to as the pastor? Who would the members of the building committee go and speak to and present our building project to them? In virtually any world, he would get our attention and she would slip in and out unseen. But not in Jesus' world. Verses 43 and 44. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty. You see, her identity is not tied to money, is it? It's not tied to image. If it was, she could not have put that in the box. What was defining her was love for God and her trust in him that he is the defender of widows. It's why John Chrysostom wrote, Jesus did not look at the value of her money, but the wealth of her soul. Because what Jesus looks at is not the external appearance of image. It's not what first century scribes or 21st century us might have looked at, like the size of her house. It is the size of her heart that Jesus is looking at. And unlike the scribes, she is what it means to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself because she loves sacrificially. OK, so how could we be more like her and less like them? How can that hold of image and external stuff that that stuff has on our hearts, how can that be broken or at least diminish? And how can we view other people less by the criteria of image and possessions? How can that sort of stuff decrease and a heart of sacrificial generosity in our lives like hers increase? Last point then, investment giving your heart. Well, I want you to go back to the beginning and the fact that Jesus is not just David's son, he is David's Lord. That Christ is sat at God's right hand. That he's the king. He is sat in the place of highest honour, the place of greatest glory. And ask yourself, how does my desire for the best seat compare to where he sat, exalted to the highest place? You see, it's as we grow in awe of Christ's glory 
that true glory begins to come into right focus, doesn't it? And our desire for the shallow glory of image begins to fade. And yet within a few days, these same leaders, these same scribes, are going to be condemning Jesus as being worthy of death. And Pilate, the Roman governor, will offer the crowd a choice. Jesus or Barabbas? Jesus or a convicted bandit whose son means son of Abba, son of the father? And the crowd choose him. And so Jesus, son of David and son of God, son of the father, takes the place of Barabbas, son of the father. But in doing so, he takes all of our places, doesn't he? And the poor woman, she gives everything that she has. But so too does Jesus, and he gives it all for you. In the words of Charles Wesley's hymn, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, and emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. And he comes down to where you are to lift you up to where he is. He lets go of glory to lift us up to glory, so that you too might become a son or a daughter of God and be adopted into his family, that that might be your identity. Not the, not the weak and inconsistent identity of external image, not the fragile identity built on image, but a rock-solid secure one, that you know you are chosen and loved by God himself. As the Apostle John writes, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And Paul would add, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And when you know that that's your identity, that's who you are, you don't need to rob other people, do you? You don't need to rob them by putting them down or by trashing their reputation to make you look better. Instead, you see his glory and how he laid it aside for you to save you when there was nothing attractive or appealing about you, and that opens up your heart in love for him and in love for your neighbour. And instead of using your resources to build up your image, you'll use them to build up others. Instead of using your energy to make yourself look good, you will use your gifts, however small and seemingly insignificant, to do good to others. And you will discover that that is not just the way to a secure identity. That is the way to deep and lasting joy. Let's pray together.